On the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast this fall, we will feature a series of conversations with teachers who have implemented their own literacy programs within schools. This episode is the first in this series. Our guest today is Jared Amato. Jared is a veteran English teacher in the Metro Nashville Public Schools in Tennessee and is the founder of Project Lit. That's Project, capital L, capital I, capital T. Project Lit is a teacher and student-developed literacy initiative that combines project-based learning and social-emotional learning, utilizing culturally sustaining pedagogies, encouraging literacy achievement for all students. Please note, we discussed this unique literacy initiative in February 2020, before the widespread school shutdowns caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, Jared Amato. I'm curious as we start out, can you explain what a book desert is? Yeah, thanks, Scott. A book desert at a very simple level is an area with limited access to books. There's an article that I read back in 2016 about book deserts and the importance of growing up with books around you, in your home, in your community, and especially in your school. And so we're talking about book deserts, we're talking about classrooms, schools, communities, neighborhoods, where books, and in particular good books, books that students are excited to read, are hard or impossible to find. Yeah, because I had never heard the term, but had an idea of what it must mean when I first heard it. Actually, we start our school year, so this is now uh, my 11th year in the classroom. And so my first unit in the fall is about access. And so I ask students the same question you asked me. What is a book desert? And you get a lot of looks. And so then we spend time (laughs) researching and reading about book deserts. And then we move into identity, uh, students' identity as readers and as writers, the importance of access and identity and really shaping uh, who we are. Yeah, it's just a really, a lot of people, myself included, had not seen the term really in print until recently. Interesting, you mentioned classrooms and schools. I used to teach history, and I, I find it hard to believe that a classroom could be a book desert, but I guess it could be. Yeah, I mean, we're talking schools, a lot of schools without libraries, without full-time librarians. I teach in Nashville. The middle school in East Nashville where I used to work, I was there, back there for a, a PD day last last year. Turns out the library was, was not being used. Wow. So this, this beautiful library on the second floor. The school, literally students could not go upstairs to use the library. And then we're talking here in Nashville about our literacy crisis. And you have libraries <laughs> full of beautiful books that, are, were, that were literally off limits to students. I walk through schools all the time. One of the things that does sometimes worry me is when I get the feeling that things are there just to be seen and to look good, but not being used. Even when you have materials or even when materials are available, that doesn't necessarily mean students can have access to it. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I feel like at a very simple level, when we're talking about literacy in particular, to have a football team, you need the right equipment, right? In basketball, Mm -hmm. you need the equipment in the band. You need to have the instruments at a very simple level, something that should be happening in every school, right? There should be enough books for students to read and find themselves in and discover the world and escape and do all these beautiful things with books. And without books, it's almost impossible 
to become a reader, to enjoy reading, to see yourself as a reader. And so we talk about curriculum and assessment and data, but really, I mean, yes, we want to we want to focus on those things. But at a very simple level, let's do the easy stuff first, right? Let's flood our schools and our classrooms, especially our English classrooms, with great books, and then go from there. I, I don't know. I think there are a lot of problems that are really hard to solve. Access to me is the easiest and one <laughs> that we could solve tomorrow if we really wanted to. If you can tell us a little bit more about what Project Lit itself is, I guess access was kind of the first thing you realized that the problem was. Is that right? There are four words that that kind of shape my identity as an English teacher, right? Choice, time, access, and community. For the past 11 years, I've, I've grown and reflected and refined and value, right, giving students time to read every single day in a safe, welcoming, encouraging, positive, warm environment where students feel safe, where they feel valued, where they feel seen, where they feel comfortable. I had a group of students back in 2016. They were sophomores at Maplewood High School. I had taught many of those students the year before as freshmen. And when we got back in the fall, we read about book deserts and the importance of access. I posed a question as part of our first unit, based learning was still supported by our district at the time. And so the essential question was around, how do we increase access and eliminate book deserts here in our community in Nashville? And at that moment, Project Lit Community was born. And it was a student-led effort to flood our community with books. And then more importantly, I think, really just empowering our students to become the reading role models and change agents in our own community through mm -hmm. book clubs, through service, through just a variety of ways, really just one step at a time about solving that, that big problem of book deserts, but really also just at a simple level, like how do we make reading fun? How do we make it celebrated? How do we make it exciting? And really just kind of doing that work step by step. Usually when folks like us start talking about how to improve reading or how to get kids interested in reading, usually we go and we try and find a publisher with a program to buy. This is so different from that approach. I don't think as educators, oftentimes we feel empowered enough to do. It, it really is a grassroots educator and student driven movement, right? Where there is no program, there's no computer app, there's, there's no prescription, right? It really is about empowering young people, empowering educators to create the authentic reading environment and reading community that we all we all crave, that we all need, we all deserve. And so it's been really fun to kind of just to build something that, like you said, is really organic and yeah, there's, there's no publisher behind it, there's no money behind it. And that's, it's been really fun. And like you, you asked, right? I think the, the formula that I found is if we focus on increasing access to, to great books and to improving students' reading attitudes, we'll see the better, we'll see the outcomes. Mm -hmm. We'll see the outcomes, whether we're measuring it through ACT score down the line or a map test or really like how students feel about reading, how they see themselves. And anyway, we'll get into all that. But at a simple yeah. level, access and attitudes leads to the outcomes over time. You need to have patience. I feel like people are, are so easy. Like the, they're, they're looking for quick gains and immediate growth in reading, which just is not possible. That, that doesn't happen. Right. The idea of a self-motivated reader, you know, getting students involved in understanding that and how powerful it is for everything that we do. 
Do you have a student or a group of students who you could tell a story about how this has affected them and and what you've seen? Uh, just uh, a student that could be an example. No, I could I could probably give you. I'm looking at my my board in my classroom right now. There's there are 30 students that I could talk about individually who founded this. Who are the founders of Project Community? When we talk about me, I'm I'm the teacher that has been lucky enough to to work alongside these students for now three plus years. But our our founders have led this work. They've dedicated hundreds, if not thousands, of hours to uh, to this work, to uh, reading to younger students, to leading book clubs, to organizing conferences, to interacting with authors, to writing poetry and speaking publicly and running our social media. And so that founding group graduated high school in May. And now Mm -hmm. uh, there are 13 students from our founding group who received full ride scholarships to Belmont University. And many now just just text me last month, Dean's List, first semester, doing doing great work in college. There are student, student athletes, students who are now playing football in college, who were dedicating Saturdays to, to serving our community and painting libraries and reading to little kids and delivering books. I could go on. And so there are dozens of students here in Nashville who have started this work. What they've done is they've inspired now, we're talking thousands of students who are project-lit leaders in classrooms and schools across the country. And so that founding group, what we did, without realizing at the time, we created what we call a model chapter, a project-lit chapter, which is just what we describe, a group of students who are passionate about this work. We encourage other schools to join our community and join our movement and start chapters of their own. Talking about you know success stories, there are so many today that give me hope, that inspire me, that inspire each other, that, that are incredible. And so, yeah, there are... There's a few that I could I could share specifically, Rodrea and Lauren and David and Kier. There are there are a lot, but it's it's really been I used to coach sports, I used to coach football and basketball. Mm-hmm. And this is this is my new team. It's a it's a reading team. And I feel like we celebrate and champion our athletes a lot, but we don't always do that for our readers and, and that's what I think we've tried to do is just build this team that uh, supports and uplifts one another. Did I hear you write that out of this group of 30 students that you started with, 13 of them got college scholarships? Full, full scholarships. And a bunch are cool across the state and other places, but 13 are Belmont scholars. And so it's been it's been incredible. You think about what it takes to get to college, right? Obviously, the ACT is there. All the research that connects the volume of reading and writing that students do is a huge predictor of college readiness. So these students read and wrote a ton in high school. But then you're also talking about resumes, right? The amount of community service. And for them, they didn't consider it service, but it was. So they could speak to the work that they did to help our community and to give back. We hosted book clubs every month. So they were used to interviewing and talking to adults and sharing their success and their excitement and, and interviewing well. They were able to write about their their experience, the power of literature and the power of reading and the power of, of community. And so anyway, all those things added up. And I felt like, yeah, we, we work together get to support each other on, on that journey throughout high school. That's so interesting, too, because I think it was in Education Week uh, sometime in the last couple of weeks, authors of the commentary were talking about the lack of opportunity to practice social-emotional skills and learning. Personally, don't really like the term soft skills. I think it sends the wrong message about how important 
these non-academic skills are, even though we know that it's a huge part of student success. And what you're describing is exactly the kind of thing that uh, this commentary was saying is lacking in schools. No, and so we actually received a couple of grants for social-emotional learning, right? Like the idea that in an English classroom, you can absolutely, absolutely hit every piece of of the castle wheel through your instruction, Mm -hmm. through your regular day-in and day-out classroom routine. And it's a beautiful thing to to be an English teacher, to help students read and write and make sense of themselves and this crazy world we live in. And it all adds up, right, when you create this safe, welcoming place where you can read and write a ton and process and reflect and talk. Guess what happens? Students are excited to be there. So attendance goes up. There's no behavior issues. There's a sense of belonging and community. So few schools have enough opportunity for kids you know, kids to mentor other kids. And that's no, just amazing. And yeah, and especially that. So for us, right, we did it two ways. One, we opened up our classroom to the community. So we're talking adults would come in. And so our students would sit at tables and eat breakfast and talk about books with adults as equals, not the traditional come in like they know everything and lecture and our students are bored out of their minds. It was as equals. In fact, the adults would often sit back and we would tell them to listen and learn from our students. And so that was really powerful. And then our high schoolers would go down and we would mentor middle school students and we would read to elementary students. And so then we're also empowering our high schoolers to be the role models and the experts, right? And so you're kind of getting that beautiful thing where they're interacting with with people of all ages in a really meaningful and authentic way, building confidence, building self-esteem, building, like you said, those soft skills, which we know are essential skills. All of that is also creating this, this positive peer pressure to read more and to write more and to, to continue to develop their own literacy identity. Mm-hmm. You mentioned culturally relevant education, culturally relevant literature. Do you ever get pushback that, oh, you're not teaching the classics? Better yet, what, what, how do you define culturally relevant education and literature first? And then we'll come back to that question. I think what happens so often, I've been a little annoyed by kind of like the, the national dialogue, right? I think they kind of create this either or tension and friction that like they, they pit. It's like we're pitting books against each other and creating <laughs> this like false debate when the reality is this, right? Too many of our young people stop reading, right? They, they stop reading. They seek entertainment and connection and belonging through social media, through video games, through all sorts of things. But at, at a certain point, students stop reading. And so I think we need to acknowledge that what we're doing in a lot of classrooms and a lot of schools is not working for a lot of our students, right? A group of students that, that care about their grades and will do whatever the teacher tells them to do because they said so. But a lot of our students are smarter than that, push back and they're saying, wait a minute, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to read this when I can spark note it or when it doesn't matter? Or for what I recognize in my setting, in my school, was that the way we were doing things, and honestly, it's not even the classics in a lot of time, a lot of places, it's now a, a, a strict diet of close reading. So it's giving students a ton of what they call complex texts. Yes. Just one after another with text-dependent questions. There, there's kind of no relevance oftentimes. At best, it's like somewhat decent. 
And what it requires is like a lot of energy on the teacher to either make it engaging or make students read it. And it like it requires a lot of work. And, and there's a lot of rhetoric around like, oh, it's a, it's an equity thing that students all need to be reading grade level stuff. But a lot of it, I think, is is about money. Where you know where are we getting these materials from? Who is demanding it? It's a lot about compliance. And anyway, I'm getting down. I could ramble about this for, for a while. <laughs> I didn't hear. But I but I my set my my point is. Life is really short. My dad passed away unexpectedly over the summer. I'm a big believer in helping students develop a love of reading. And that comes a lot of times through choice and just creating an environment where we're always reading and discussing stuff that matters. So there's there's so many great books and poems and nonfiction and podcasts that are really complex, but also relevant and engaging and really important to, to read and discuss. And so that's kind of like we're able to build this classroom where we're reading and writing a lot of different things. You know, I've been out of the day-to-day in the, in the classroom for uh, several years now. And one of the problems that we encountered when I got started was there was not enough close reading and that was not encouraged enough. But at the same time, it doesn't do any good if the kids aren't motivated to do it. Yeah, um, I, I say this a lot. I say a text is not rigorous if no one reads it. <laughs> like, it, you know, we spend this time and it, the teacher is forcing students to follow along as they read it aloud, or they're, you know, they're highlighting, but they don't, they don't know what they're highlighting. Close reading is not important. We're doing a ton of close reading in here, but when you look at how we design, how I design my classroom, it's student-centered, it's student-led. There's act, there's tons of books right now. There's, I wish you could see it. Students are. They took all the books, so students have read anywhere from 5 to 10 to 50 books this year on their own, including independently, our, fresh, our my high school freshmen. What they're doing is they're taking all the books and they're drawing, literally drawing lines and making connections between them. So you can literally on this page see their brains churning and making connections about race and class and gender and identity and love and hope and the future and the past and they're they're all, you could you could literally see their brains moving and thinking in this really really deep and complex way and they're well, discovering on their own and, they, and then we're sharing with each other recommendations and we're we're having book clubs and we're having conversations and we're writing and we're and so you're just like building this this beautiful community and i know it you know when you're talking about systems i, I know it's harder right like it's scarier for a district to to move in that direction because it's it's giving up control. It means that it may be messier or it may mean that teachers are doing different things at different times. But like our each each of my classes is different. There are different students in that in that room. <laughs> and so all I think is I think we should help teachers, myself included, develop and build out a really robust toolbox, different texts and strategies and ideas. And then depending on the students you have in that room, you can pull out different things from that toolbox different times and so unfortunately our oftentimes our system doesn't matter whether it whether it's a state curriculum or if a state is completely on common core the assumption is that every student should be able to do this 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 and this learn at the same speed be able to uh, to show mastery at the same speed and in exactly the same way. And of course, anybody who's taught for any amount of time knows that that's just, that can't be. 
most parents that have taught their kids stuff know that that doesn't make any sense if they think about it. No, it's it's exactly right. Like I've I've been uh, I've been boxing as my workout for for about a year. Mm-hmm. And so I title boxing. I'll go in there three days a week or four days a week, right? And so there's a lot I could say about it. At a very simple level, the gym they're not expected for all of their clients to leave with the same whatever body mm-hmm. mass index or the same mile time or the same measurements, right? We're all we all come in at different points. Their goal is to create an environment that allows me to grow and to become stronger and faster and healthier and to create the conditions for everybody to grow uh, at their own pace and in their own way and, and build the relationships and develop a workout routine and create a structure that allows us all to flourish in that space. They're not measuring each of us the same way. right? Uh, and, and so it's somehow we, we in this education space, I feel like a lot of educators and, and schools – there's a lot of noise and, and we end up feeling paralyzed and pressured to to take shortcuts or to advocate for, for things that we know are not good. And we say we're doing it because they tell us to or because of the <laughs> data. But when you really step back, like, what does the common sense tell us? Like, is this is this helpful? Are we creating places that are full of joy? Is school a happy place to be for teachers and for students? And if it's not, take a step back and ask, like, can we do things better? Can we do things differently? And so with the work that we're doing, like with Project Lit and different things, I, I never want to tell people what to do or how to do it, but really just to show them, here's what we're doing. Hopefully this helps you take a step back and reflect on your own practice as an English teacher or the policies that your school is implementing to like to either create or not create the literacy culture that, that students deserve. And so that's kind of, as a, at a simple level as a human being, what is my purpose here in this classroom? to kind of switch gears a little bit, like what percentage of our students will become English majors? Do you know? Probably not many. And I actually had a uh, conversation with another guest on this podcast, and he was talking about STEM careers and that he had to be mindful that, you know, less than 5% of the students that he has in a perfect world would end up actually going into STEM careers, just the way that it is. Same thing, I'm sure, with English or whatever content area. What is the number? I don't know. That's what I'm thinking. I think it's shrinking by the year. And so it's my point with that is there are there's a small percentage of students in our school that may be ready to go after Shakespeare really, really hard, right? To really read all of the classics. But if we're being honest, most of us spark note or BS our way through so that we can sit up, you know, answer questions on Jeopardy or sit at a cocktail party. <laughs> And act like we, but none of us have read all those books. If there was one book or a set of books that guaranteed you would become a proficient reader, of course we would read them, right? But we know that's not how reading works. And so my thoughts are, let's step back again, and how do we increase the chances that students will continue to read at home and on the weekends and next year and next decade? And also just ensure that they have the ability to read and write well. And that's where feedback comes in, and that's where we're able to actually teach writing craft and, and we're looking at what, what students are expected to do in college in terms of research and citations and just to be able to read and write proficiently and quickly and fluently, you can get to that outcome without reading, you know, pick pick a book, right? Whether it's a scarf letter or to kill a mock, whatever, like any of those books. And I know again, teachers get upset because those books may have meant a lot to them and there's a sense of pride. But really my I think my point is like I don't think anything is essential. I think it's really 
working with students to design a sequence and a structure that that makes sense to everybody in that room. I see what you're saying, and I think that probably is true. Who has read all of them? Yeah, and I I would say there, you know, Jason Reynolds, an uh, incredible young adult author, says all the time, like once students identify as as readers, and they're like, yeah, I am a reader, and they have the confidence to finish books on their own, you can then throw anything at them, right? What happens is we get students who we call reluctant readers, and really it's because they've had just year after year of poor to mediocre reading experiences in in school, and they've stopped reading. And so then when we throw something at them that they're not excited about or interested in initially, they shut down. And And if they've had poor experiences, when you throw that at them, even if they might be be otherwise interested in it, if it's too hard, it's too hard. It it is. And, And so it's really about, again, meeting students where they are and coming to it. And again, there's there's some creative ways. Like I've seen teachers do great things with classic texts or with new texts. Part of the exciting thing as we move into a new decade will be, one, redefining what a classic is. And then also, there are so many great books that are being written now to be read now. And I think there's just a lag in education, right, based on publishing and getting permission and getting right. into the textbook, right? And there's this lag. And so what happens is books are around 10 to 20 years before they, they're added to the curriculum. By then, it's too late. And there's this untapped potential in schools to make space for for texts, whether they're, again, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, making room for new and exciting texts, making room for them now, especially when students have the potential and the opportunity to engage with those authors in real time. Uh, the power of social media and technology for students to Skype with authors, to, to reach out, to meet them at festivals and conferences. And there's this thing that, like, it didn't exist even 20 years ago, right? And, and with authors who have passed away, right, you can't, you can't interact with Shakespeare. Of course, there's value and power in examining older texts. But my point is there's this really cool opportunity to interact with with authors in a way that didn't exist before. Sure. One other quick question uh, before we go. What is one book that you would suggest that more teachers should read? Read on their own or with students? Read on their own. Huh. That's a different question. Well, I'll say it's, <laughs> it could be the books could be the same. Um, <laughs> So there are three, uh, let's go with three. I'm looking at my classroom right now. One, we talk a lot about, you know, one of the problems with the way we do English is that we drag one book out for an entire nine-week period. By that point, even the best book is just destroyed, right? Right. We spend nine weeks beating it to death, and there's the traditional paper at the end, and it, 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 that traditional model doesn't work for a lot of our kids. So Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds. Okay. You can eat it. Or listen to it. Uh, the audiobook is, is narrated by Jason himself in 90 minutes. Powerful, powerful story of a young man deciding whether or not to to get revenge. His brother has just been murdered, and you don't know if he's if he's dreaming, if he's seeing people from his past. So there's like shades of Christmas Carol, but like set in in an, anyway. Long way down by Jason Reynolds. The 57 bus by Dashka Slater is nonfiction that reads like fiction. It's super compelling. It is set in Oakland, California on the 57 bus, and it explores the intersection of race, class, gender, justice, education. There's a ton to unpack and discuss and think about, especially for our educators. It's one that we'll read with our students here shortly this semester. One more 
when you talk about educa- educated, it reminded me of Trevor Noah's memoir, Born a Crime. And again, and he narrates that himself. It's, it's stories from his childhood in South Africa, and it touches on a whole bunch of ama- family and apartheid, using humor to overcome uh, trauma, tragedy, uh, inspire students to write stories of their own. It's great to listen to the group of students. It's great to listen to in the car and to listen to each chapter on its own and kind of come back in and you, you hear Trevor Noah sharing these really personal and heartfelt, uh, at times heartbreaking, at times hilarious stories. Yeah, there is, it's, it's really, really good. And so those would be three that I would recommend. Thank you very much for joining us, Jared. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. This has been episode number 18. The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is hosted and produced by R. Scott Lee, who retains copyright. We encourage diverse opinions. However, opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of producer, partners, or underwriters. Guest was not compensated for appearance, nor did guest pay to appear. Transcripts are available following podcast publication at our website, thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com. Sponsorship opportunities or other inquiries may be made on the contact page at our website, thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com. Please follow the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast on Twitter at Dr. R. Scott Lee. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.